Uh, I'm Steve Noblett, and uh, and even though it's not in the program today, uh, you have a special delight because I'm actually going to co-present with my good friend, Dr. Andrew Kim, um, since he is a doctor and I'm not, and since he has done both domestic and some foreign missions, and I have, and and basically I'm a, I'm a, I don't know what I am exactly. So uh, I'm the executive director for uh, an organization called Christian Community Health Fellowship, CCHF. And uh, if you don't know us, you should get to know us. Um, we're, first off, we're free, and we're just all about trying to find people, help people find their place in the body of Christ where they can be the most fruitful in service to him. And so a lot of people think of us as the domestic medical missions people uh, here at the conference. We're the guys that keep, like, waving our arms going, hey, the U.S. is part of the globe. You know, it's on there. This is global missions. That's not all international. And, um, and so, anyway, we've got uh, connections with people that are committed to doing medical, uh, mi- medicine missionally to serve Christ, to, uh, to advance the gospel, to see the kingdom of God uh, to see all the nations and, uh, you know, come to the feet of Jesus and that kind of thing. But our focus is primarily the United States. And so um, so th- this topic, the role of domestic medical missions in preparing the next generation of medical missionary pioneers, was the shortest title that we could think of for this. <laughs> so, uh, and to be on- so to be honest with you, I'm not... Uh, and I'm going to be really transparent about this. I'm not sure whether I proposed this workshop or whether it was assigned to me. Um, but the, kind of the reason for it was that every year we come and we have this booth downstairs in the exhibit hall on, uh, in the fellowship area. And, and every year as we're setting up before the conference starts, we get a fairly steady stream of uh, overseas missions organizations who come by our booth and say, thank you guys for being here. The best prepared missionaries that we have on the field are people who served in CCHF clinics around the country. And you should tell them all that. And, um, and so then the question is, well, why? Like, like what, what's that connection and what did they get from working in these the settings that we represent that's helped them over there. And so, um, so on one hand, I want to address that because I think that's important. On the other hand, I am so diametrically opposed to thinking about overseas missions and domestic missions. Do you realize that that is not how God sees missions or mission? He has this one integral mission. He has one word that he has spoken over all of his creation, and that is that it is to come under the headship of Jesus Christ. And God does not think of America as domestic. And if he did, he's, he moved last week. You know, I mean, I, so I, I don't know. He, so God, God seriously does not think about America as his home and everywhere else as something he wants to send people out to. He thinks of... The whole earth is his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The people and all that dwell in it. Because he founded it. He was the one who created it. And he created it, we understand in Colossians, he created it. Not, it was created by him and for him. And he holds it all together. Like God's intensely involved. I know I'm preaching to the choir. But 
if, like if, if there's anything that you can come away with today, it's that mission is not something you need to prepare to go do. It's something you should have woken up today and said, I choose a lifestyle of mission. Like today, it's not, it's not what you're going to do one day when you get out of school or one day when you get your student loans paid off or two weeks next summer, you know, it is a lifestyle choice. And, and if you're not a missionary today, you might not be a very good missionary ever. Like today is the day that you guys should start missions if you haven't already. And so that means that where you are, you're present, you're representing the gospel, and you're moving forward in the things of God, and you're advancing his purposes with every breath and every relationship. And I know that seems really super intense, but it is very joyful. And it's how we were created. It's what we were created to do. So that's my whole talk. Um, so I want to uh, start by praying. Can we do that? This, I, I got in at 1.30 in the morning last night, and uh, so this is my first exposure to the conference. And, and Father, we, uh, Lord, we come before you this morning, Lord. Uh, this is a new day. It's a beautiful day. It's the day that you created, God, and we want to. We just want to soak all of the joy, and Lord, all of the revelation that you have for us. We want to soak every drop of it out, God, today. And so, God, I'm asking, Lord, for you to make our hearts like sponges and our minds, Lord, Lord, just so eager to seek you, God, and and thoroughly to seek you. And so, Lord, we begin this morning by offering ourselves to you. We, Lord, we do offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices, God. Uh, Father, it's the only reasonable thing we can do. And, Lord, we don't want to do anything else. We don't want to live for ourselves. We want to live for you. Lord, your kingdom deserves to cover the whole earth. And, God, we want to be a part of that in our generation. And I'm asking, Lord Jesus, for you to, Lord, to just guide us today, God, to keep our ears open and our eyes open to the things that, that you want us to see and to hear Lord, that we might be more dedicated servants to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to get sort of straight to it. Like, what is being done now in this connection between what's happening here in the States and what's happening other places? Well, for one thing, there's a lot of residency programs out there. There's a number of residency programs that are, uh, that are training people to do missional medicine whether that's overseas or domestic, and they're training them by doing missional medicine here in the U.S. And so uh, even some of the secular uh, residency programs, there's a number of them that are very faith-friendly and that have, um, you know, that have uh, uh, solid Christian uh, preceptors and mentors that are, uh, and faculty that are really, really intentional about equipping people to to do missional medicine, and they're doing it through that. And so there's a lot of stuff going on in residency programs, preceptorship opportunities, internships and rotations. We were just talking with a young lady um, just a few minutes ago who's looking for a gap year program. There's gap year programs at a number of the Christian clinics around the country. There's, uh, uh, there's, about, there's somewhere close to 100 Christian clinics that offer accredited um, rotations where you get to shadow a doctor for three or four weeks and watch faith-infused, gospel-driven health care that's really good. I'm not talking about student-run free clinic crap. I'm talking about, seriously now, I'm talking about the real deal. I'm talking about people doing real medicine, real involved, that are, you know, the things that you would, that you would be proud for your mother or for your daughter or your granddaughter 
in my case, to, to depend on for their health care. But doing it out of a, out of a heart for the gospel and doing it where the gospel's infused in that. So there's, there's those opportunities. Uh, there's clinics that are launching new international pro- projects. I want to talk about that in just a second. But these are, these are organizations around the country that are doing real gospel-infused medical mission work. Uh, and they're doing it in areas that resemble what you might experience if you were going to be doing work overseas in a third-world country. So um, I want to give an example. This is a hero of mine, and uh, it's a guy named Myron Glick. Dr. Myron Glick is a family medicine doc in Buffalo, New York, and he started an organization called Jericho Road Community Health Center. Has anybody ever been to Buffalo? Yeah, so if you, do you know Jericho Road? Have you been to? No, you should know. Okay, so everyone should go to Buffalo because it's a beautiful city. Try not to go in February necessarily, but... <laughs> Like, it's beautiful, even when it's snowing, it's beautiful. But anyway, Jericho Road is, uh, Myron started this practice because he really wanted to serve the poor. He was raised as a missionary kid in Belize, um, and uh, he really felt that God was calling him into missional medicine. And, and so he started this clinic to serve the poor, and about that, the time that he did that, Buffalo just started getting this gigantic infusion of refugees. Because New York State is still the number one port of entry for refugees in the country. And the state of New York does not want them all to settle in Queens. Right? So it, cause, because they've got to take care of them for at least so many months. Right? And so that's expensive if they do it in New York City. Buffalo, which used to be a city of a million and a half, was at the time a city of around 400,000. So, you know, two-thirds of Buffalo was brown space. And... There were just all kinds of opportunities, and it was cheap to live there, and so they shipped them all to Buffalo. And Buffalo has had a, a, a rebound as a city. It looks more like Toronto or, or uh, Vancouver, British Columbia than it does anything else in the United States now. They are, there are so many refugees living there, and nobody really wanted to take care of them medically. And so, uh, you know, Myron put his hand up, and he said they can all come here. And so... Uh, I've been involved with Myron since those early days, and um, and he and I was had some conversations. We talked a little bit about the whole concept that Acts one eight says, "You'll receive power when my Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in." And the next word is, and the next word is and Judea and the uttermost parts of the world, the earth, not or, not then. But and, it's a both and thing, right? And so, you know, and his response was, well, God's bringing the nations to me, so this is, we're good. But it, it started weighing on him, started thinking about it. And so he went to his uh, staff and he said, listen, um, you know, the Holy Spirit that's moved us to care for the poor here in Buffalo is just as concerned for the poor back where our people came from. And so here's the way we're going to do it. We're not just going to throw a dart at a map. But we're going we're gonna to win people to Christ, and we're going to disciple them here. And any of those that feel led to go back to their home country and do this same thing there, we'll go with them, and we'll let them be the leaders. And so um, this is a picture. It's hard to see, but it's a picture of a, of a nurse. Her name is Phoebean. And Phoebean came from Sierra Leone, and, um, and she was pretty traumatized by... Uh, she'd been a refugee, and she was 
had been very traumatized by just all the things that had happened in Sierra Leone. And, um, and she came to Jericho Road as a patient, um, but she, through... She had been a Christian, but she sort of rededicated her life to Christ, largely through their influence and the kindness that she was shown there. And they hired her as an interpreter first, and then they, uh, they found out she had some decent nursing skills, and, and they hired her to do some other things, and they encouraged her to go back to nursing school, and she did, and, um, and got her nursing degree and came on staff as a nurse, but had always said, God delivered me from Sierra Leone, I'm never going back, and... Um, and so Myron stands up and he shares this whole strategy with his staff, and God drops into her heart, I want you to go back to the, to the place where I birthed you, and I want you to carry my gospel there. And so, um, so she went to Myron, and she said, listen, I've always said I'd never go back, but I really feel in, in my district, which is the Kona district of Sierra Leone, there's no hospital, there's no doctor's offices, there's nothing like this, and the people need Jesus, and they need care. Would you consider going there first? So they sent um, a couple of scouting teams there, and again, if you know, we've got sun coming in and everything, but basically this is a, a piece of wood that they had that somebody got excited about when they told them while they were there, and they painted J-E-R-E-C-O ministry on there and put it on this piece of land, and it was sort of their claim. It's like, we want you guys here, and we want it to be right here, you know, so misspelled it all. They had their um, their ground uh, breaking. So I, I want to say that here's a, another little thing about Jericho Road. As long as I've known them until this point, Jericho Road had always struggled to, to recruit providers to come to Buffalo, New York, and, and serve with them. Even though they were growing fast and there was a huge opportunity for ministry, people would much rather go to Clearwater, Florida, than to Buffalo, New York, to practice medicine. And, uh, and they were really frustrated with that, and they, they had really tried hard to, to recruit doctors, and they had had a hard time. And, to, and frankly, they do... You should visit. You should visit this place just to get a heart for what a, a heart for the poor is about. Like they are, they will not spend fifteen cents on themselves if they can spend it on the poor. You know, and um, they're just they live simply. Their their clinics are not the nicest clinics out there in terms of facilities, but the medical care is the best you can get in Western. Uh, New York State, and um, and they do everything for the poor. And so they've never had two nickels to rub together. They've always been right on the edge of oblivion in terms of financial stuff. But here they've made this commitment, and here Phoebe and said, "I want to go." And so Myron starts going around, and he starts talking about we we need a, we need to put a Jericho Road clinic in Sierra Leone to the people of Western New York, and people started giving to it. And people started funding it. And so uh, this is what they built. They built this beautiful uh, clinic, sort of, you know, it's, it's like a, a small hosp- bush hospital kind of a thing at a beautiful clinic. And here's the, uh, the gates to it. Jericho Roads Ministries is a little better than, the, than the, the piece of wood that they had out there. And they opened it. And when, as they opened it, the Ebola crisis hit. 
And it was just this amazing, beautiful provision of God and the timing of God, because the times are in his hands, right? For there to be this resource in this district during the middle of all of this crisis. And um, it's been a huge success. Uh, Phoebe has moved back there, and she runs the place. Um, And in western New York, in, 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 uh, in Buffalo, the patients are hearing about, you know, the refugee patients are hearing about this. And so they're in the process now. They're a couple of weeks away, actually, from opening a clinic in, uh, in Congo. Uh, they've got a clinic uh, scheduled to open in Nepal and another one in Ghana. All of them front stories just like Phoebean. And so this is a connection between, you know, this is global mission at its best in my mind. This is seeing people raised up, empowering them, following them into their countries. Like, they're not dependent on U.S. dollars to keep this going. They're not dependent on U.S. leadership to keep this going. This is a Sierra Leonean, if that's what you call them, you know, leader who is... And they're planting churches there. The gospel's going forth. This is a pretty amazing thing. I just want you to see that God's global mission includes North America. That's, uh, that's really important. Um, so North America as a, as a uh, missions site, uh, this, is a, this is a picture of medically underserved areas in the United States. This is a very recent map. And if there's any color on this map, it means that... Um, that it is severely medically underserved. So, looking where we are today, any color, any color means severely medically underserved, huh? Including green. The only thing that's not considered medically underserved are the white spaces. Did you realize that there was that much? So, so, so um, again, this is since Obamacare. But 16,466 medically underserved areas in the United States with just over 66 million people in the United States living in an area where, they, where patients have to compete with one another for doctors as opposed to most of the things that you see on TV where doctors are competing with each other for patients. And, um, you know, and so anyway, I've said this already. Mission is not something that you may do one day. It's a way that you live. And that you should think missionally about medicine in North America. So I want to talk for just a second about biblical precedents and principles about uh, that tie, if you will, your home area with God's desire and, and will for you to go into the nations. Okay, we've already mentioned Acts one eight. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth meaning that, it, that God's heart is for the whole thing. It's not for this place first and then this place and then this place. And so, you know, we say all the time that if, um, if, you're, not, if you're not being fruitful in your missions work here, what makes you think that you're going to be fruitful in your missions work when you go to someplace exciting and exotic uh, overseas? So early mission strategies, Uh, I want to look at Barnabas and Saul's first uh, and second missionary journey. So um, so in in Acts chapter 13, we have the first missionary journey of, we we talk about it as Paul's first missionary journey, but it really started out 
uh, in Antioch where the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And it's significant that Barnabas' name is first. That, made, that, that means that he was the lead guy. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And so after they fasted and prayed, the elders laid hands on them and they sent them off. And the two of them, Barnabas and Saul, went down to Seleucia, which is the seaport by uh, Syrian Antioch, where they, were, uh, where they were. And they sailed from there to Cyprus. Any guess why they might have gone to Cyprus? Where was Barnabas from? He was from Cyprus. Yeah, and so um, and so they get they get to Cyprus and and they sort of get on one end of the island of Cyprus and they work their way all the way to the opposite end of the of the island of Cyprus and um, and at the very last place that they were in Cyprus. There was this, uh, you'll, you'll remember this story, you should all know your Bible, so you, you'll remember the story where they're talking to the proconsul there in Cyprus, and this sorcerer comes and he's trying to uh, deceive and dissuade the, the, the proconsul from listening to the gospel, and Saul, anointed by the Holy Spirit, it says, um, like pronounces judgment on this guy and says, you're a God, you know, you were blinding people's eyes, therefore God's going to blind yours. And the guy is struck blind instantly there. And there's this evidence of the Holy Spirit's anointing on Saul. And at that point, they change his name from Saul to Paul. They start calling him Paul. And it becomes Paul and his companions. So up until that point, it's Barnabas and Saul. And they're, at, they're in Barnabas's home territory. And they're talking to government officials. Now, Barnabas was a landowner. That's how we're introduced to, to Barnabas in the Bible, is that Barnabas, who was a landowner from Cyprus, was in Jerusalem and part of the church there that was birthed at Pentecost. And when they began selling lands, it says it specifically says Barnabas sold a plot of land and laid the money at the apostles' feet. And then you have the weird story about uh, Ananias and Sapphira lying about all that. But that was in contrast to Barnabas, who was this generous guy, a landowner, a landlord, and a person with influence in government, uh, in the halls of government. And so that's where they went uh, when they first you know, started a missionary journey. So here's a map of that. All right, And they go from uh, after the miracle that, that's, that Paul does and strikes the sorcerer blind, uh, it becomes Paul and his companions, and the first thing Paul does is say, hey, let's leave Cyprus, we've been here, and let's go to some place that I'm familiar to and take a look sort of at the road that they're on. And again, why would they be going in that direction? So Paul was from Tarsus, and he's moving into an area where culturally and linguistically he is he's familiar with the cultures of, that, of, the, of those people. He's familiar with their history, he's familiar with, the, uh, with their language, and he's moving into sort of a home base, if you will, a place that, that, uh, where God had originally planted him. And so they get to Derby, uh, and this is, uh, again, Lister and Derby were these you know, big stories where he's stoned and left for dead, and God raises him up, and, uh, and then they decide, well, it's, it's probably good for us to just go back home now, so... Not that, not that that wasn't, I mean, they went back through and strengthened the churches and did all the good things that they did. But they end up going back to Antioch. So 
Um, the second missionary journey, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord, see how they're doing. And then they had this breakup, if you remember, where Barnabas says, great, let's get John Mark. He can be our administrator. And Paul says, I'm not taking that that loser with me anymore. He abandoned us when we were on our on the first missionary journey. He's not coming with us. And Barnabas and, and, and Paul get into this big dispute. And so they split up. And Barnabas goes back to Cyprus. And Paul takes Silas with him. And it says he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay? Now, I want you, I don't know, I'm going to just, I, I better not. All right, Syria and Cilicia. So they go over land, and where are they going? They're going through Tarsus, back to eventually Derby. But it says they went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They didn't go to Syria or Cilicia in the first missionary journey. How were their churches there? So if you know Saul's, if you know Paul's story, Paul gets saved on the road to Damascus when he's going to persecute the church, right? And um, and he ends up spending several years in Arabia, having these amazing revelations, and in Damascus, and then they take him to Jerusalem. And, at, and in Jerusalem, he's accepted by the apostles, and he begins to preach, and there's a plot to kill him. And the apostles in Jerusalem understand that his life is, is at risk there, and so they shuffle him off to Caesarea. And Caesarea is a safe place. Paul goes to Caesarea another time in his life, later on in his life, to escape the dangers of the people in Jerusalem that are trying to kill him. So they, they send him to Caesarea, but Paul doesn't stop there. Paul goes from Caesarea back to Tarsus, and he spends roughly five years in Tarsus in silence. We don't know anything that's going on there. The next time that we see Paul is when the, the brothers in Jerusalem get a, uh, a word that, there's, that the gospel's preached in Antioch and they're Gentiles that are coming to the Lord there. They're not sure what to do about that, and they send their friend Barnabas to Antioch to check it out. Barnabas sees the evidence of the grace of God. I love that little phrase. He sees the evidence of the grace of God there, and he sends to Tarsus to Paul. So what does that tell me? It tells me that Paul stayed in touch with the apostles while he was in Tarsus. It tells me that Paul was not sitting around on his hands going through residency program or whatever it was that he was, you know, he wasn't in Bible college in Tarsus for five years. What it tells me is that Paul was busy with the gospel in his hometown for five years, and the fruit of that shows up at the beginning of his second missionary journey where he's visiting churches we don't know anything about. They're in Cilicia, all around the Tarsus area, and there's these little church plantings that Paul has been busy doing. So I'm just saying we're we're watching a principle that people were fruitful where God had initially planted them, that people were about the gospel there, and as they were about the gospel there, they saw fruit in that, and then they began to move out from that. Um. So I'm going to ask Andrew, we're going to spend the next, really the rest of the time sort of talking about how to intentionally use the opportunities that are here in where you are to prepare you to be fruitful for the rest of your life wherever God may lead you, whether that's overseas or domestic. 
And so um, this is Dr. Andrew Kim, the OG of, of domestic missions, and um, he's going to come up without his hoodie in a few minutes. But what we'd like to do is um, sort of in preparation for that, I want you guys to uh, sort of pair up in groups of four or five, no more than five, three or four would be even better, and take three or four minutes, and I want you to just make a list of what things you feel like are important in, to, to sort of gain and to develop in your life in order to be an effective medical missionary? What are the things that are really important for you to gain in your life? And, and especially, let, let's just all assume that doing excellent medicine is on everybody's list. And so that doesn't have to go on your list again today. Like, that's important, but that's not... Other other than learning great medicine and best practice medicine, what are the other things that you feel are important for you to gain in order to be effective as a, as a missionary? Can you all break into groups right now and do that? And we'll give you four or five minutes. Well, I hope you, I hope you all had a good discussion. And I'm just – I'm – I'm Andrew. It's really nice to meet y'all. I'm curious what came out of your discussions. Does anyone want to volunteer just a few things that you guys talked about? Uh, we, we kind of talked about the challenges kind of opening up your home. Um, for me specifically, my wife and I, uh, we uh, enjoy our time together. Um, that's something we really struggled with, learning to balance our time together and also giving that time away to our neighbors and friends and people in our lives uh, to invest and pour into them. Um, so I think that's something that's very important for the mission of life, uh, to be able to do that um, well. Great. So time management, that's so true. What else? So we said pursuing our own individual walk with God, uh, you know, pretty hardcore and intentionally doing that. <laughs> yeah, definitely before you can preach, you have to preach to yourself. And there's so much truth to that. Anything else from this side, maybe? <laughs> yeah, we, I, we said kind of similar things as well. Uh, talked about like, personal spiritual health, thinking about intercultural and personal skills, uh, also like, more academically, thinking what, what academic skills do I need, what kind of education do I need to feel. Awesome. Awesome. What else? Yeah, it's great. Living simply. We talked a little bit about calling and how many people end up in long-term missions because of feelings hmm. or because of experiences they've had that touch their hearts and all of a sudden they feel like they're called because of their emotions and how long-term commitment really requires a true calling which requires a lot more than just an individual feeling, but it also requires input and feedback from people you trust and know you got best before you make that kind of thing. Awesome. Yeah. Um, obedience. It's like we have to be obedient to the like the Great Commission now. Uh, that's so good. I think those are probably better than all the things I'm going to talk about. <laughs> No, it's, it's really good. One of the things that I've been talking to Steve about is, and Steve has been talking to me about really, is 
the fact that most of the things that we need to, that we do when we're overseas and that we do on the mission field are, man, like most of those things we need to be training and doing while we're here. Um, a lot of those things are easier to train and prepare for while we're here than when we're at that country or that um, community that we're headed to. And, yeah, that's completely true. Um, okay, let's see if this works. Okay. So <laughs> I like the picture that Steve shared of me. This is from our intern year and one of the other <laughs> my, one of my co-residents, I guess, um, is also in this picture, uh, Dr. Dickert over here. Um, this is a little creepy, I think. <laughs> our residency thought it would be really cool to have us all in hoodies, and I guess to, because our, <laughs> our residency is in the inner city. Um, <laughs> because we were all not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is how we go into our, our patient rooms. <laughs> trying to meld into the culture as much as possible, and it's an important part of it. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that Steve gave me the opportunity to participate in this, and, and really my purpose is to share kind of a little bit about the, the medical side of things from, you know, my personal experience, and then I want to talk about the experience of some of my um, co-workers, really. Um, I'm originally from New York. Um, when people ask me where I'm from, I say I'm from New York, and then I say and Korea, because that's usually what they're asking about. <laughs> um, yeah, I, usually when I'm in Memphis and people ask where I'm from and I say I'm from New York, they gasp and they're like, why did you leave New York <laughs> and come to Memphis? And it is to be a part of this community, um, simply. This is, I, I'm so blessed to currently live and have lived in this community in Memphis that's extremely missional and is a sending community in many ways. It's a sending residency program where, you know, if I look at this group of my intern class only, um, two of them are headed overseas. One of them is a medical director at LA Christian Community Health Center. Um, another one is the sole provider at a, a clinic in Kansas City, um, reaching, the, reaching the underserved there. Um, and then the two others, me and Dr. Peoples there, are still in Memphis. And it's a group of just extremely missionally minded people and and it's been an honor serving with them. Um, so really the whole thing that I'm going to talk about is being intentional with our time here domestically. Um, and I think someone mentioned obedience. It really is obedience where you are, and that's what it means to live missionally. Um, I think it's really listening to what God's telling us here and overseas or wherever you're headed next. Um, there's no way to say that, like, you know, living in Memphis is the same as living in, um, in a third world country. The, there are some similarities. Like, there are so many differences. And so sometimes it's hard to imagine that training to live overseas means living in the U.S. and training um, because of all those differences. Um, and there's so many different, you know, especially if you're going medically, there's so many different healthcare issues. There's so many different diseases, things you won't face. So in many ways, you won't be able to train for those things. But what I've found and what other people have found really is there are tons of differences, but, man, there's so many similarities. And those similarities are about the process of living intentionally and living missionally. And those are things that you can really train for. And that's what I'm going to talk about. The other thing, and just before I move on, is 
living domestically and training to go overseas. Um, sometimes I don't like the word training or preparation, even though those things are very true, and mainly because I don't think our purpose when we live anywhere is that it be a practice for living somewhere else. The purpose is to live intentionally in that area, to love the community, and to, yeah, and just to be there as missionaries no matter what, not just to be trained in there. Okay, so, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, the colors aren't looking great, but I'm going to talk about one of my favorite kind of sections of the Bible from Matthew 9 into Matthew 10 as I go through this. Um, this is from Matthew 9, 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. I think that the time that Jesus spent on the earth with his disciples, um, it, all, it all happened before he gave the Great Commission. So that, those were his final words. But before that, he was very much... This time was training and preparation for his disciples, for them to eventually go out and change the world and to preach the name of Jesus. And I think we can learn a lot, and it kind of is a similar analogy. Um, We're going to kind of go through this. The the first things I want to point out in this verse is that Jesus looked at this crowd, and what he noticed about them and what he said about them is that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And oftentimes, those are the people that God is calling us to minister to. Um, It's this crowd that he's looking at when he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. These are the people that don't know Jesus. These are the orphans, the widows, the sojourners. They're people that don't know their father in heaven, so they're orphans. They don't know their bride, so they're widowers. And they don't know, sorry, they don't know their husband, and they're the bride. They don't know their husband, so they're widowers. And they don't have an identity, and they're wanderers. They don't know the Holy Spirit, which gives us our citizenship in heaven, so they're sojourners. And these are the people that Jesus is telling us to reach out to. And just like Steve showed on that previous map, there are people both in the U.S. and outside the U.S. This is a picture of one of the local hospitals that our residency program has worked at. Um, I'm going to tell the story of just one of the patients that my wife, um, who I'm also finished from the residency program, Dr. Esther Kim, um, that we were taking care of. Her name was Miss Porter. And she was a patient that um, came in with disseminated hysteria, which is a horrible disease. She was AIDS, and when she came in, she was dying, and she had had a previous case of this. And very much she um, had many social problems. She had a really tough home life. And when she came in, she was completely broken, and she felt awful and um, she was septic and physically not looking great, spiritually not looking great, emotionally not in a good place. And, man, and she came into the hospital, and um, in many ways, like, we thought she was going to die. She had previously been put on palliative care for end-stage AIDS um, in other hospitals and had kind of been discharged to go die, but somehow she had made it this far. And one of the things that 
is really true about her is she, she was harassed and helpless um, by both the community that was around her and by the medical system that was around her. Um, she was being seen by another physician who, you know, later we found out had continuously been prescribing her HIV medication, but um, hadn't actually seen her in quite a while because she was hard to get into the clinic, and she had a very poor transportation system, so she had kind of everything going against her. Um, she, she is one of the hardest people to love. <laughs> she, you know, both medically and spiritually and emotionally was extremely difficult. And my wife did an incredible job of taking care of her, um, and they developed an incredible kind of friendship, really. And um, it was, you know, this is one of the things that we often have to do is we have to go out to the harass and the helpless and we have to do it in a setting that's very different than what we're comfortable with. Um, you know, whether it's home visits to this lady's home, um, really talking to her with her partner and kind of explaining what the situation is, um, having really difficult conversations. Um, and we're doing it with the people that are where it's hardest to do it with. And I think that's a lot of what Jesus has called us to do. Um, Right after, and from Matthew 9, you know, this is, so he, he tells them to, um, that the harvest is plentiful. And then he tells the disciples, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is the part I want to emphasize. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. And the words of Jesus, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sorry, proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And very much the command of Jesus to both preach and to heal. Um, and it's so important that we do that no matter where we are. Um, some of the things that I want to talk about, things that we do intentionally um, while we're here is, um, and that, that we can do while we're here and while we're overseas is practicing minimalist medicine, which is using just the available resources. Um, when both in underserved communities and overseas, oftentimes you don't have the same resources you may have in a, a big city or somewhere else. Um, one of the other things that we've had to learn is increasing our scope of medicine to serve those in need. Uh, things that you might not initially be comfortable with, you may have to learn to do. <laughs> and the final thing is community health evangelism. Um, and there's a few other points later, but um, taking care of the community and figuring out how to manage community health for the sake of the gospel. So this patient that I'm talking about, Ms. Porter, um, one of the incredible things we, we do at our clinic is we take care of HIV patients. Um, and it, it seems almost silly when I think about it because there's actually a ton of infectious disease doctors in Memphis, Tennessee. There, there's more than enough infectious disease doctors to actually take care of the HIV population. But the HIV population in Memphis is extremely difficult to take care of. Um, besides transportation, there's a whole host of rheumatologic, sorry, of social social issues that um, that make it really hard to take care of this population. And in many ways, I feel like um, the clinic we're a part of takes care of HIV patients better than everyone else. 
because we, we do it with the love of Jesus. Um, when I talk about increasing the scope of medicine you practice, um, really what it involves is looking at the community that you live in, um, seeing what those needs are, and figuring out how to address those needs. So essentially, our, the founder of our clinic, um, Dr. Domlin, that's what he did. He, he noticed that this was a huge population that wasn't getting into care and wasn't being taken care of well, and he went and he got extra credentials and um, almost did like a mini fellowship and learned how to take care of this population and came and taught the rest of the clinic how to do it. And this is not easy to do. Um, it took a lot of work, but it was a commitment to caring for those that are harassed and helpless. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, that necessarily you, you know, just read about something on up-to-date and then all of a sudden take care of the hardest illness. Um, that's probably not a great idea. But learn how to do it well and learn how to do it and increase your scope to do it. And, you know, in our clinic, oftentimes because patients are uninsured or underinsured or have whatever social and transportation issues and they can't go and see specialists, um, we've ended up managing tons of illnesses. And the, the difficult part is doing that well and in a way that, that honors those patients. And it takes a lot of work, but I think it's a practice that you have to learn now. Um, you have to be willing to do that practice that's not easy so that when you go overseas and surely you will see things outside of your normal scope, that you have a process in which you can do that. And I think that's so important. Um, yeah. This is just a graph of um, new AIDS diagnoses, and Memphis actually has the highest rate of all, and essentially the whole U.S., of new AIDS diagnosis per 100,000 um, people. Um, it is an extreme need in our community and one of the reasons why we said we have to address this. The reason that it's important to look at these graphs and charts and stuff like that is so that you understand the needs of your community. This is a part of community health evangelism. It's looking at what does your community need and how can I address it. Um, and it's not easy. Um, it takes time and preparation and planning, but this is one discipline that is so important. Um, one of the things with Miss Porter that we had to do was we had to go to her home, and my wife went to her home and um, found literally, I don't know, was it like 50 bottles of HIV medications that she had never taken um, that were being delivered to her home. And she couldn't take them because she couldn't swallow pills, which is unbelievable, but no one had realized that. And she kept on getting her medicines, and her viral load never went down, <laughs> never went down, and her CD4 count never went up. And... It took something that was outside of normal practice um, to really figure that out and to help manage her, and, and, and she's doing better now, slowly but surely. Um, she's someone that we've loved and preached the gospel to, and very much when you take care of the harassed and the helpless, that is one of the best outlets to share the gospel. Okay. One of the other similarities I really wanted to talk about is, and I think I heard people mentioning it over here on this side, is the fact that, you know, when you go out, and this is what the disciples did, Jesus sent them out to go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and he sent them out um, into these villages to do it. And you would imagine you're going out to do this incredible thing. You're bringing healing. You're bringing restoration. The people will love you, right? They will welcome you with open arms. They will do everything to kind of help your ministry. 
But instead, this is what Jesus says immediately. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear a witness before them and the Gentiles. So whether it's here or overseas, when you go out and you go with the ministry of healing and the ministry of the gospel, and you heal people and you bring hope to people and you change lives, you'll be dragged before men. You'll be persecuted for this. You will suffer for it. Um, I'm not saying it's something you practice for, but in the lifestyle of mission that you live, it's inevitable. And, man, Jesus, Jesus knew it. And, he, you know, he tells us to go heal, and then he warns us because he knows as we go out with his gospel, there's going to be opposition. The kingdom of man will not stand for the kingdom of God. And, man, that's something that we have to do. It's something that we've experienced um, in our residency program at Resurrection. And every year someone has tried to close down our residency program, despite the fact that, you know, universally our residents were generally loved by patients and providers and everyone else. Um, For, you know, various political reasons, it happened every year, and it was really tough. But it's also part of the practice of living the gospel and living missionally. Okay, um, I'm wrapping up here, but this is one of my favorite quotes. I actually don't know who it's by. It's, the light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. Um, I think it's attributed to C.T. Studd, who's a British missionary, but I'm pretty sure um, there's instances of this being said way before he was alive, so <laughs> I don't really know who said it, but it, it's an amazing truth. Um, these are pictures of some of the people that have been sent out from Memphis and from the residency and um, people that are headed overseas or are overseas. Um, the light that shines farthest shines brightest at home. So the people that had their hearts set on going overseas, these were the best local missionaries I ever met. These were the people that loved their communities more than, than everyone else, essentially. And I'll to say, like, when you have your heart set to go overseas, God will bless your ministry at home if you have that same heart. It's, yeah, it's, I'm not saying it's the reason why I want to go overseas eventually, but it's one of them. Um, When your heart is set for the nations, it will shine brightly at home. And I've been constantly amazed by that. One of the residents that I worked with, um, and I'm not going to use his name because he's going to kind of a closed country, but he's one of the smartest people I've ever worked with. He, you know, rocked his boards and was AOA and just was extremely and is extremely intelligent and is, you know, he would sleep, I don't know, three, four hours a night and just just be able to do everything, it seemed like. Um, he went into family medicine, though, um, and that's a really amazing thing. Um, there's a culture in this world that says you have to live up to your full potential. So we hear it all the time. You have to live, and other ways of saying you have to live your best life. So you have to use the gifts that God's given you to its max ability. And I'm not saying it's not true, but I'm saying it gets twisted and distorted because in many ways, like, 
Um, in the Bible, you see, for example, the sons of Zebedee, what they want, James and John, is to see Jesus lifted high. And they want to see Jesus come and take the reins of leadership. They want him to become the head of the government and bring peace in the world. And, man, Jesus could have done it. Like, Jesus is all-powerful, and he could have come, and, man, he could have been the new Roman emperor of the time. And there's, man, in many ways, Jesus did not live up to his full potential in that sense. If you looked at it from a worldly sense, like, Jesus could have done anything. He could have, you know, gone to Harvard and been the best physician of all time and published thousands of papers, but he didn't do any of that. Um, He did, and this is, um, it's hard to read here. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus, if anyone could have not done what the Father was doing and done an incredible job, it was Jesus. If anyone had the ability to, and had his own great judgment and his own intelligence, it was Jesus. But instead, what we see is that Jesus discounted all of that, and he was obedient to the Father. And in many ways, when we work in these underserved clinics, um, we will not be living up to our full potential, and people will tell you that. Um, We will um, not be doing kind of all the things that we could have been doing. And, And that's all right, because obedience to the Father is so much more important. And it's true when you go overseas as well. You'll have so many opportunities as an extremely well-educated person to do whatever you want, but that's definitely not the solution or the answer. Um, I talked before about increasing your scope for the sake of the gospel. You have to be willing to decrease your scope for the sake of the gospel. We know so many surgeons that have trained with us that are not practicing surgery right now. It seems like a huge waste of their talent, but it's not because they're being obedient. And that is so much more important. And it's something that you have to learn here before you go overseas for sure. Okay, I think we're just at about time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Let's end a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for just this chance to to meet with disciples, to meet with family, to meet with people that love you. Lord, I pray that you would prepare this these people to for your mission field. I pray that they would be missionaries where they are, and they would be missionaries overseas, that they would live a life missionally. Pray, Lord, that you would bring your joy into their hearts, Lord, that um, as they go through difficult times and as they go through difficult preparation, that they would be joyful because of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would <coughs> yeah, that you would be um, everything in their life, Lord. I pray for hearts of obedience, um, hearts of love as they seek after you. Thank you so much for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.